How do you define an entrepreneur? I think is one of the most interesting public policy questions out there. Is it when you start to employ somebody? Or could you define a freelancer as an entrepreneur? In fact, anybody who starts any organisation, could they be defined as entrepreneur or entrepreneurial? That's why I think Brett Wigdortz is one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs in the United Kingdom, because he originally started Teach First, which is a company that we have all heard of. It was set up to specifically tackle a public policy problem of trying to get more ambitious people to begin their career in teaching. It has been an enormous success and is one of the largest recruiters of graduates in the United Kingdom. It's also spawned a whole generation of companies that have followed similar ambitions. For example, Entrepreneur First, who we've had on the show before. Brett tells us about that journey that led to him starting Teach First and why now he is tackling the childcare industry through his new venture, Tiny. We talk about the process that he came up with for that and how he took a career break to really work out what he wanted to do. Thanks very much for joining us throughout this series. We are finishing next week with interviewing the next two candidates to be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. It will undoubtedly be a fascinating end. For more information on what we do at Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners, and I wanted to thank The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially-minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series, and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, or the CEO of their investment arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. Brett, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. Now, reading your background, I was fascinated to learn that your career started or your first paid job was as a football referee. What did that teach you for the rest of life? Yeah, it's really funny because I'm not um, a corny guy and I was a, I was a good swimmer. I, I worked as a lifeguard also. Um, and the reason, and I don't know anything, I never played football in America, but my younger brother was really into soccer, as we called it in America. And I used to get pulled along with my parents, all these uh, tournaments all over the place. And I remember just going to a tournament and they needed a linesman. And I did the lines and I got $10 a game and thinking, God, this amazing money. So I went and uh, got uh, referee, my referee uh, certification. And I was making in America at that point, I, was, I remember being 16, 17 and making quite a lot of money, you know, in, in one weekend of refereeing lots of uh, tournaments that my friends would be making, you know, in weeks of working minimum paid jobs. Um, and I think what it taught me the most is, just not to ignore people when they're um, being really mean to you and when they're uh, telling you off. Because obviously, you know, I'd be like 17 and the parents would be screaming things at me from the sidelines. I just remember someone saying, you know, 
Bob, you do lobotomies. Do you have this guy in the office recently or, you know, saying all sorts of awful things to me and you just ignore it. And I think that's probably one of the best lessons for the world to work, right? You can't listen to all the complaints you get all the time. Yeah, that's so true. You've got a thicker skin than me because I tried it a couple of times and just couldn't couldn't handle it. I found it I found it really hard. It was it's been a very good challenge actually, particularly as a teenager to sort of do. Um, and so what you're perhaps most renowned for is setting up one of the kind of most entrepreneurial brands of the uh, last well of the 21st century, really, that of Teach First, which was just a kind of incredible success story and is now the largest graduate recruiter uh, in the United Kingdom. This is perhaps an obvious kind of question, but it's something that we ask everyone is, is where did the name come from? Uh, Teach First, actually, it's a funny story. So our original uh, supporters were a company, an organization called London First. So I was a McKinsey management consultant, and I had been doing work on the war for talent and worked for lots of banks and other organizations all over the world. And I got on a project where um, these two business groups, London First and Business in the Community, asked McKinsey to figure out what businesses could do to improve the quality of education in London, because schools in London were very uh, broken at that time, much, much, you know, and they've improved a lot in the last 20 years. And uh, came up with the idea of Teach First. And my original thought was we call it uh, Teach London First because it was like going to be sponsored by London First. And then I remember right before we launched, we were like, well, I might go national at some point. Let's take out the name London. And that was actually the original way we came up with the name Teach First. And then as we started using it, we were like, well, this works really well. Like, because it's, you know, Teach First. It's the first thing you should do. Um, we sometimes got stick by people said, you know, oh, it means Teach First and then do something else, which was never, never, never the intention of, of what the name meant. But it was mainly that teaching is the first thing you should do after university. And then, you know, you may stay in teaching, you may do something else, but um, but the name seemed to work. Because it spawned like a whole kind of generation of different things that have, have kind of copied it, right? If that's the sincerest form of flattery. Yeah. Right? We had Alice Bentonick from Entrepreneur First on, which is yeah. all about kind of trying to persuade people to be entrepreneurs. And it was so obvious that that had come from Teach First. I mean, you must be incredibly proud looking back at it all because it's it's been a proper cultural change that you've achieved. Yeah, it's really been fantastic. I mean, there's Frontline, which is uh, social work, basically first. There's Think Ahead, which works with mental health. There's um, Police Now, which helps people you know do frontline police work. There's Unlocked, which is around prisons. Mm -hmm. And it's all about looking at, um, you know, an entrepreneur first is, a, I guess, less, less around is, you know, being an entrepreneur, but most of them are around um, public service. And I think the shift is, you know, from, let's say, the 20th century, where people would see, you know, if you go into public service, it's something maybe you enter when you're 21, 22, and you do it for 60 years, 50 years, and, you know, maybe you retire when you're in your 60s or so, you get a pension, and then you, you die, basically. And I think it's the idea of teach first is actually the 21st century way of working is people move around, you know, if most of us hopefully will live, you know, close to 100 year life, hopefully at some point soon, then you're going to have lots of different careers and public service isn't something you should have to do, you know, pick when you're in your 20s and then do for your entire career. But actually, it's something you can do for parts of your career. Skills you get from doing public service can help you in other types of work. And, you, you know, the idea of moving back and forth between these different things, whether you're a police officer or a or a um, prison guard or a teacher or social worker, you shouldn't have to feel you have to do it for decades and decades. You should feel like you can do it for parts of your career and then, um, you know, come back and forth. 
Yeah, it's one of the things Reed Hoffman talks about, isn't it? Kind of tours of duty of, of doing different things and signing up for, for two or three years. I think it's one of the biggest examples around how modern day career patterns are shifting. And I was very intrigued to read in the research for it that actually there was a lot of government involvement in kind of getting Teach First kind of off the ground. And you talked about this period of a, a bit of a valley of death where you'd had the initial idea and then actually executing it was, uh, as is always the case, much more difficult. Could you just kind of explain to us a bit about how you did work with the government? We, uh, we have a lot of listeners from the government who are always looking for kind of new and inspiring ideas. So it'd be great to hear how that did work. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, the government is a massive bureaucracy. It's difficult to get things done. I think um, where we were lucky in 2002 was Tony Blair had famously said his priorities were education, education, education. He had a great policy lead on it, um, Andrew Donis, who's now Lord Andrew Donis, who I think is one of these guys who, who gets stuff done, you know, and actually is about getting things done, um, and was looking to make different reforms in education. And they had tried something called uh, teaching fast track, I think, which didn't really work at the time. Because it was uh, basically because it was a government-run scheme, and government doesn't really do a good job running entrepreneurial schemes. And you know, my whole point was like, this can't be run by government; it has to be something totally outside government. But it needed to be supported by government because, on the one hand, we needed regulations changed to allow people to train as a teacher in a different way. And um, even though most of our money came from different sources, we needed at least some government money to pay for the uh, PGCE element of it, to pay for the teacher training element, which needed changing. And at first we were turned down by the minister and the, the minister at the time did turn us down. And I remember say, him saying, you know, look, this will never work. You'll never be able to get people to do this. And I think what was good at that moment is we did have support from someone powerful at Downing Street in, in Andrew. And we did have enough people in, uh, we had some civil servants who were really helpful and um, different officials and, and, and some other ministers who managed to get that overturned. So we had some people who were really open to the idea. Yes. Uh Andrew Donis was uh, has sort of slightly become obsessed with Brexit, like has a track record as an incredible minister of thinking innovatively and pushing stuff through. He is uh, like a, a very creative thinker on on that side of things. Um, and so with that in mind, you then took on the challenge of creating Tiny. And I would love you, for you to kind of explain more about why you decided to kind of you know you led one of the most kind of impactful organizations in the uk like to step back from that and think right i'm gonna do something else and i'm gonna take on a new challenge uh must have been quite an experience can you talk us through your kind of thought process with that well i led teachers for 15 years and i you know had often thought 10 years is the max that anyone should really lead an organization um, and, you know, I often think you very rarely hear a great leader in an organization or in any group, a country or anywhere who that you think, wow, after 10 years, they get so much better and, and have a bigger impact. So I was really thinking, you know, I didn't want to be a lifer at Teach First um, and I wanted to move away from that founder CEO. So, you know, by our 15th year, we had basically reached uh, a scale that, you know, I don't think they've been able, you know, they haven't scaled bigger since then. We reached sort of the scale where we should have been. I don't think we should grow much beyond there. And I was thinking about how to figure out my next role and what to do next. And when I looked at education, I mean, my real passion is ensuring educational equity and ensuring all young people, all children in the country and the world get access to an outstanding education. I, I believe very strongly that's a massive civil rights issue. We don't spend enough time talking about it. It should be talked about a lot more. The fact that some children and young people get access to a wonderful education and some don't 
and that's true in, in Great Britain today, it is a massive crime. And I think something that we should be very ashamed of. Um, and I think that's worse in early years. If you look at the entire education system, early years is one area where that starts and, and it's a really bad situation. Um, and what struck me was in the last uh, 15 years that I've been involved in education, people hadn't really focused on early years. Like they had secondary schools, even primary schools for their education. And there seemed to be a real need there for someone to really see what can be done to reform it and change it and improve it. Um, and I visited so many primary schools where you'd see children who had a good early years education, who had a, went to a good nursery or had a good, good experience, you know, were doing great in reception or year one. And then you'd see children who didn't have that, who weren't able to play or weren't able to communicate, who had this massive gap that just kept on going on through primary and secondary school that was never able to close. Um, and then on the other hand, obviously, I have three children. And I know if between me and my wife's a, a paramedic, um, it's very difficult, obviously, to find good, affordable childcare in this country. And in most countries I saw around the world. So it felt to me like this is an issue that needs to be solved and needs a new way of thinking. And it is critically bad in the in the UK, right? And in England in particular, the, the proportion of childcare costs is getting uh, extraordinary in terms of the amount it's taking out of people's pay packets. And also it leads to lots of other knock-on effects in the rest of the economy as well. Because actually for a lot of parents, one of them perhaps decides that they're not going to return to it and that is a you know becomes a, a huge problem in terms of the t talent pool that companies have available to them it's a triple whammy earlier so i always wonder why there isn't more government focus on it um and i think it's probably because it if i'm being frank there's a bit of latent sexism in it you know people always think mom moms take care of this and they have for you know thousands of years you mm -hmm. know little kids are basically you don't have to do much with them i, th I think there's you know just a lack of understanding but if you think of the triple whammy, on the one hand, great early years care ensures that um, children are ready for school and they'll do better in primary school and secondary school. And actually, you know, um, you can have a bigger impact with kids at a younger age to ensure they do well, you know, throughout their school age. And, and there's more and more research and studies have shown actually it's it's a bigger deal than we used to think. Brain development in this, this uh, important age at two and three years old. I think the second part is uh, productivity. So, you know, Mostly it's women, you know, some dads, but usually it's the moms who then have to take masses of years off from work and they come back to work and they're less productive and they haven't been able to, you know, re-enter the workforce in time. And, you know, there's a huge knock-on effect um, that has. Yeah. And then the third is, is just the cost, you know, I mean, there's a massive cost. So um, in the OECD, I think the early years care is more expensive in England than almost any other OECD country. So it's this massive whammy where there's a cost of living issue, there's a productivity issue, and there's an education issue. Um, and if we get it right, we can really fix a lot of issues all at once. Just explain to us what Tiny is, because the the sort of success that you've had uh, is pretty extraordinary already. You know, you are the largest child minding agency in the UK now. What does it actually do? I realize we've kind of jumped from teach first to early years, and, and perhaps a listener might just need an explanation of what Tiny does. Yeah. So, so when I was leaving Teach First, I really, I spent a year kind of thinking about what I wanted to do next. And um, I did a bit of work uh, with Jamie Oliver, which was really fun. And I just did lots of little pieces um, in Australia and different things to help uh, different Teach First programs around the world. And I really started fixating on early years for the reasons I, I just talked about. And then in early years, I thought, okay, what is it needs to happen to fix early years? And um, basically, for, for listeners who aren't like totally familiar with lots of early years options, there's basically four options. 
The first is informal care, which is basically have your grandma or auntie or, or someone like that take care of kids, which is great if they, they exist. And, you know, many times though, um, you know, they're not very good at, at small children or that auntie or grandma doesn't exist, which is, is more and more likely in today's world. And then the three more formal things are you, you get a nanny, which again, can be great if you have tons of money and you can maybe get a wonderful Norton nanny or, or someone like that. Uh, but for the most part, most nannies don't even follow the, an early years framework. Many of them aren't well-trained, but you know, certainly that's a very expensive option. And then the two like mass market options are nurseries and childminders. And nurseries are what people are most familiar with. But the problem with nurseries and why nurseries don't seem to be working very well, and many of them are, are closing and having all these problems, is because it's really hard to make the numbers work. So you have private mm -hmm. equities buying up all these nurseries, and the way they try to make money work is they um, basically hire people at minimum wage or below minimum wage, often apprentices and things, um, because you just can't make the money work because you have so many overheads, so many legacy costs, so many management costs um, that you have to basically pay the practitioners, you know, six, seven, eight, nine pounds an hour at most. Um, and so the average nursery salary is about eight pounds an hour, which is, you know, today, no one will take a job at, at, that, at that salary, yeah. and certainly it's not a career. And it's very difficult to figure out a way how you change that with nurseries unless a lot more money goes into the system, which which is unlikely. So then you got the fourth option, which is childminding. And childminding used to be massive. There used to be over 100,000 childminders in this country, but now there's about 35,000 and it's dropped a lot. And childminding is basically nurseries in someone's home. And I always describe it as like the Airbnb or the Etsy um, or the Amazon you know, type solution, where basically you don't have all these massive overheads. You don't have all these legacy costs. Instead, you have one or two, sometimes three people at most in their home uh, who take care of, you know, a number of children. It can be up to like, you know, sometimes 12 to 15 children with a few assistants. The, the parents pay about 15, 20 percent less than what you pay in a nursery. It's eligible for all the government schemes. They still have to follow this early years framework and everything. They, they all have very high safeguarding and everything. But um, the person keeps 80, 90 percent of the money. So most child minors you know, can earn 30 to 40,000 pounds a year, which is similar to a teacher or a nurse nurse or, you know, other key workers. So it works basically. But the reason up to now it hasn't worked is because um, there's been very little focus on, on how to make childminding work as a career. And these childminders need support um, once they're up and running. They, there's tons of payment issues. So all these government schemes are very difficult to deal with. It's very difficult to become a childminder. You need someone to support you to do that. And that used to be um, local authorities, but local authorities stopped doing that, you know, about 12 years ago when the funding uh, dried up. And so there's no one helping these tiny, tiny micro businesses to do that. So about five years ago, this new legislation was started called Child Mining Agency, which was actually started by, by Liz Truss when, um, you know, potentially next prime minister, when she was uh, the early years minister. And the whole idea of child mining agencies is to help organizations and, uh, you know, charities, companies, different groups support child minders. Problem is, you know, it's never really taken off for all sorts of reasons because we're, we're competing with Ofsted and government subsidized agencies, which is very difficult. But we, we became a child mining agency. We're one of five in the country now. And what that means is um, we're digitally based. Uh, my co-founder was the CTO of Gray's, the snack business and the founder, and my third co-founder had this whole big digital design studio. So we're very focused on the tech and the, and the digital product. And we want to make it really easy for child miners to get up and running. And then once they're up and running, we want to make it really easy for them to run their business and to be part of this fantastic community where they feel really well supported and they're not lonely and they have lots of uh, you know fun doing a great job. And in some ways, I'm looking at it as like teach first for child minding. I mean, getting new people into the career and making it um, really exciting for them.
But this time, interestingly, it's not a charity in the way you've set it up. You're kind of venture-backed, likes of Index are behind you and so on, which is a, a massive uh, venture capital company. Talk to us about the, the thought process for that, that you had in that kind of year off and, and why you decided this time you wanted to do something venture-backed. So I'm not making a ton of money or anything like that, but I would say, you know, I think, you know, maybe, maybe a small percentage of, of people end up doing it, but certainly not, not, I haven't seen anything like that, but um. You know, Teach First made sense as a charity because we got um, most of our money from government or from schools or from, um, you know, charitable sources. And with, with Tiny, basically, um, you know, it's interesting. Early years is one of the few areas of education that private sector is probably bigger than, than the public sector, which is, it's interesting why, why that's the case. I don't think there's a logical reason why that's the case, but, but it's certainly the case in the UK. And for us to raise the money for the tech, so the tech product has cost a few million pounds and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty intense product. I, I would say it's the best in the world for um, at-home nurseries and it's something you know, we've seen in other countries also express interest in the product we, we've developed. Um, you know, that's quite expensive. Really, to build a, a child mining agency that does all the different things you need to do to support um, child miners is, is expensive. And it felt like it was a lot easier to get the money from the VC world than from uh, the charity world. Um, I'd say what's kind of been fun being a VC-backed startup, I, I have all sorts of um, problems and concerns with the charity world, which I haven't talked about having been in there for 15 years, um, you know, where I, I just think, you know, it's not always an ambitious world, the charity world. Um, I often found like it's sort of set up to stifle ambition and growth, you know, and, and you think there's actually only a few charities out there that have really managed to, you know, solve the problems they're meant to set, solve. I think there's, there's a lot of issues with it. And I'm, you know, really excited about being part of like the VC sort of tech world where it feels like there's a much bigger emphasis on growth. There's a much bigger emphasis on impact, um, you know, and, and I think it's been really fun. And also my two co-founders have a lot of experience in that world too. So it's, it's been fun actually um, entering into that world. Yes. I saw in, that you actually your salary is lower than what it was at, at Teach First yeah. in terms of your point of making money. When I started Teach First, I should say um, I did volunteer. So I left McKinsey and I, I had about six or nine months where I didn't earn any salary. And then the first six or seven years, I earned a, sorry like a third of my McKinsey salary. And then by the time I left, I was earning still a bit less than what I had earned in two thousand two at McKinsey. So I was like, I didn't mean you know join charity for for the money, um, but I am now earning less than I earned it at Teach First. Um, yeah, no, it's a uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a challenge making all those trade offs about impact and you know what you yeah. actually want to be paid to do and and so on. Just talk to us a little bit about how you structured that year off in terms of like exploring because I think it's interesting the way you talk about it. There, it's kind of like I think one of the misnomers in kind of entrepreneurship and so on is the kind of light bulb moment of it. And actually, I talk about it kind of being one of those old like uh, one of those old lights strobe lights where it kind of flicks quite a few times and then eventually comes on how did you structure that kind of year of thinking about what you wanted to to do next yeah i think that strobe light's a great great example first of all i, I spoke to probably over 100 people <laughs> i you know i mean my last year at teach first and during that before I, and the year before i started tiny I just like chatting to a lot of people. I think often these ideas are very organic, you know, and you talk to one person, they sort of give you an idea and, you know, maybe half the conversations are totally a waste of time, but then you never know which ones aren't. Um, so I just would take tons of lunches and coffees and meetings and just 
talk to everyone I could possibly think of. And I think there are two things. One, I, I very early on knew I wanted to do something else, you know, in education and something that can make a big impact. Within a few months, I got really excited about early years because I realized that that was the area that I think needed the, the biggest change. And I was interested, where is the area that could have the biggest impact and can really, you know, needs a step change. And I think preschool early years is that area. And then it took me a while to really get excited about child money. But the more I started thinking about it, I thought, well, this is the area that actually could be like, you know, if we get back to 100,000 child minors like we did, we had 20 years ago, that would change the country. And that, you know, is a solution that doesn't require a lot of money. Like, I think it's very easy to say, here's a solution that you just need the government to pay tons of money. Well, that's not going to happen. So, all right, what else? You know, or other solutions that don't require so much money. One of the big things I knew is I couldn't do this by myself. So I needed co-founders because I have no tech experience. And I knew, like, if I want something that could scale rapidly in the 2020s, it needs to be tech-focused, product-focused, like a real digital company. People say, how do I find my co-founders? I basically found them by just literally talking to dozens and dozens of people and say, do you know a good CTO who is looking to co-found a company? And I probably met, you know, dozens of other people. And each person I met, you know, I asked, do you know anyone? And until I met Ed, who was my co-founder, where one guy I said, Matt said, oh, I know somebody who's just left Graze, you know, which just sold to Unilever. He actually was just saying he wants to do something a bit more socially minded for his next uh, startup and he's really interested. And so we had a coffee and then I was like, oh, that's, this is definitely my guy. And then I just, you know, worked really hard to try to get him to join us with me. And then he knew someone else. And so I think um, networking is really, really important part of it. And then, you know, constantly just refining the idea over time. It's such an intriguing story for how you kind of have, have moved and done the done the different things um and what do you think um if you were 22 in 2022 what do you think a young brett would be studying or looking to go into what what kind of sector excites you most i mean i studied economics which which um you know i still think it's a great i'm trying to get my daughter to study it but she she refuses because i still think it's great because i think it trains your brain to look at the world in a certain way which which i still think is useful I mean, you know, what just always strikes me is, is, you know, anything around programming and development, like, obviously, it's so hard to find people with those skills nowadays. And you just see so many um, young people like, right, like we've graduated, we hired a few people who are 18, 19 years old, who are paying a fortune to ask for those skills. And, you know, if you have those skills, plus others, you know, you can then use them in, in lots of different ways. Like, I wish I, you know, understood a bit more of the programming um, ability, because I think, you know, that that is really important now yeah it's the uh the one thing when i go and speak at schools and so on and people ask me is like software engineering and data yeah. science right like it, it that do that is what all entrepreneurs are saying they're short of at the uh at the moment i, I do tell all my i mean my my children teenagers i tell all their friends try to do a level maths and i feel like they hate me for saying it but it is true like when like, even when you hire people i i just think if you you know it's just good to have a good maths knowledge because like, it just shows that you can like think critically. And, you know, I would always, uh, always suggest people try to do an A-level maths because I just think it's, it helps no matter what you want to do later in life. And Liz Trust has been quite big on that as well in terms of like how much that unlocks people's can like uplift salaries by 25%. Even like, I mean, I do sometimes you look at CVs and you just think, I mean, you know, maybe not when someone's had a career, but if you look at, if you're hiring people like in their 20s, if they don't have an A-level maths, I always just think, you know, it just always feels like, well, is this someone who can really do like difficult subjects, you know, and difficult things? And what, uh, what, do, what do you think your kids will, will do in, in careers and, and what are they kind of looking at and thinking of? Uh, I mean, it's interesting. My eldest daughter's uh, doing A-levels in physics and, uh, and uh, chemistry and math. So she, she definitely wants to get on that physics. 
you know, one of the things she often says, and I often say, like, so she's been studying computer science GCSE. She was one of only two girls in her North London comprehensive school. And, and I'm sort of changing something slightly, but it always struck me, like in primary school, my youngest daughter is in a computer science club where it's half girls and half boys. But yet when you get to GCSEs in her school, like many schools, there were two girls and like uh, 60 boys. And you just think um, that's just something I, I'm always talking to people about. Like, you know, I wish someone could solve that problem. What changes from the time a child, a girl is nine to the time they're, you know, uh, 14 and picking GCSEs that at nine, you know, girls are really interested in coding and at 14, suddenly girls don't want to do it. Like there must be some social um, messaging we're yeah. giving, you know, lots of young girls around the fact that they shouldn't be doing computer science, which I don't think anyone's really examined that. I mean, I'm sure people have examined it, but but I'd love to see people do more on that issue. Just, um, you know, I just think that's a difficult one. Yeah, and then my son's just very into football, and he's a 14-year-old who I'm trying to get to interest anything other than football. So um, if he's not going to be, he's not going to be a professional footballer. So if you have any ideas of careers for him, let me know because it's hard to get him to focus on anything else. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'd say what is interesting I, I see a lot of now is the amount of like data that football clubs use and, and so on, right? Like, yeah. and it's, um, I've been very involved with the Save Derby County campaign over the last six months. And it's been amazing to kind of speak to so many people in the club at different points and, and the kind of all the different roles now, because actually, again, like, you know, 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, like, you know, it, it was kind of like a playing staff and, and the management and not and a kind of board of directors. There wasn't a lot else, whereas now these things are massive businesses, right? And they have their own like marketing departments, their own media departments and, and data as well. Like it's pretty, um, it's pretty extraordinary to kind of look at some of this, uh, yeah. some of this stuff. And he might be good with a. It's funny. I was just talking to him about apprenticeships, which I, I, I know you've talked about. I mean, like you know, where I, I do think um, that's changed a lot. You know, in the last ten years or so, where you know it might be that my son ends up doing an apprenticeship, and I think you know there's lots of great, amazing careers. Like I, I definitely wouldn't think university is what you have to do to have a great career anymore. I think that's so true, and I think I also think is that we try and push children down university route just a bit too early, actually. Like, to be honest, like, go and have a bit of time doing some different things, whatever that may well be, and, and kind of work out the, the world a little bit, a little bit more about what you're kind of passionate about. Because at 18, 19, it's quite, like, it's quite hard, right? I was, like, exactly the same as your son. I probably would have... I wanted, I knew, When I knew I wasn't going to be able to be a uh, a footballer, I was... I got very intrigued by journalism because that seemed to be one of the other big jobs that you could kind of have in football was, you know, writing about it. Because all these things end up being stepping stones from one to the other, right? I mean, your career is a great example of that, of of like where you've taken little bits from everything you've done and then try and kind of mold it together. Um, but it, it's, it's hard, right? This is why we do the podcast because I think there's more, there's never been more opportunity. There's never been more jobs available but actually kind of like navigating that as a youngster um, or anyone, frankly, like it's not even just the young. It just is quite hard to, quite hard to do really. Yeah. It's really difficult. Um, yeah. I mean, that, and that's maybe why I always go back to like, get, you know, having some knowledge of maths and some good basis so that you can do lots of different options in the future. Um, I mean, isn't it, you know, America's much more a liberal arts system where, you know, even at university, mm. most of what you're studying isn't in your subject. And, there's certainly, you know, some advantages to that. I mean, my daughter is very focused on physics and I think, you know, she's very happy in the current system. 
I think my son will probably need, you know, a few more years to kind of figure out what his direction is. And, and of course, like my career, like, like your career, many people's careers, you know, doesn't follow a straight line. You know, I, I never thought I'd get involved in anything to do with education. I never, you know, didn't know really what I was going to do. And, uh, it just sort of, you take advantage of opportunities, which, which I think is, is another important part of a successful career is when you see an opportunity, just try to take advantage of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is a quote that you, um, live by? Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> A good quote I, I live by. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of something profound, but, you know, I think, um, you know, seize the day is always, is always like the, the cliche one. But I do think taking advantage of opportunities. I think often people have in their mind a sense of what should be happening and like what they should do next. And I've never been good at planning my career, really. And I, I know lots of other people I've, I've spoken to have done really incredible things. Usually, that's one of the things they say they, they didn't really, ha- weren't very good at planning their careers. Um, and I think, you know, having that serendipity and really being open, you know, I think in a lifetime, I mean, the one thing is to sort of try to be available, be out there so that lots of opportunities happen to you. But you know, in a lifetime, maybe you only have a few really great opportunities in your life. And I think when you see it, you know, it's sometimes just grabbing at that moment, whether it's it's right or not. I mean, with Teach First, I was 27 at the time, I think 26 or 27. And I just, you know, gone on this project with McKinsey and I just thought, well, look, no one's going to do this if, if, if I don't take leave of absence. And I asked Ian Davis, my boss, I said, can you, can I take a six month leave of absence at McKinsey? And, you know, and he said, did an unpaid leave of absence. And, you know, at the time I just thought, well, this is an opportunity to actually lead something really amazing. You know, I don't know if I'll get another one of these in my lifetime, you know, let's do it. And I think, um, you know, probably the smarter thing at that point would have been just to stay with McKinsey and just continue on my career. But, um, yeah, that would be the one thing I would say if, if, if someone's, if you see an opportunity, that's pretty special, like just take advantage of it because often in a lifetime, you don't get many of them. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a great one. Is that Ian Davis that went on to chair Rolls Royce? Yeah, yeah, he's my boss, and he's still uh, uh, a great supporter. He's one of the investors in Tiny. He's one of my uh, investors in Tiny, actually, um, and a, a great mentor. He's been a wonderful mentor of mine for twenty years. Yeah, he was, he was very helpful when I was in government on on lots of different um, things, actually. Ian, so it's great. Oh, brilliant, Brett! Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great to kind of uh, chat with you about all the things that you're doing. On like you've done so many kind of socially inspiring projects um and mixing it and fusing it with entrepreneurship and government i've been wanting to get you on for ages so it's been terrific to have it and maybe we could try and do it in person one day too great great now thanks for having me thanks for listening to jimmy's jobs one of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us they can be like today's like the octopus group or the fintech alliance but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer 52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them, and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners.